Psalm 96, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. And uh, all able bodies, if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, please do so. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for he is the God of the peoples. For I'm sorry, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we come before you to worship you, to offer our praise, to ascribe to you all that is due to you, for you are God alone and there is no other. Lord, assist us now. Help us. Grace us by your Spirit to hear, to know, to believe, and to obey. I decrease, Lord, so that you may increase, be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please, saints, be seated. <clears throat> well, I once again greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our new series on liturgy. liturgy. Uh, this morning... We will not do a full exposition of uh, the psalm that we have just read, Psalm 96, but it will be uh, referenced at least in uh, our first point and throughout our sermon. Uh, I've been blessed with the uh, task of presenting a sermon this morning on worship, worship, specifically seeking to answer the question as we ask, what is Worship. What is worship? Next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we will seek once again with God's help to answer a question. What happens when we worship? But this morning, what is worship? I think Pastor Isaiah laid a great foundation last week for our series when he taught us that we worship in the way that God has commanded. We don't get to pick and choose how we want to worship. Rather, God determines how we will worship. This morning then, with God's help, we will consider five points surrounding this question. What is worship? Number one, what is worship? Number one, what is worship? Uh, here we are simply seeking to, to know the meaning of the word. I know that for many of us, when we hear the word worship, a number of assumptions, presuppositions, and traditions enter into our minds just by saying the word worship. A variety of conclusions of what we think that word means based upon what we've experienced, what we may have studied or learned, or very uh, simply, what we prefer. But let's just begin with a definition. 
The basic definition of the word worship is a combination of two words. It's a combination of two words. Worth or worthy, both. Worth or worthy and ship. Worth or worthy and ship. Worth or worthiness is obviously something that we ascribe, here it is, value to. Something or someone that we ascribe, that ascribe means estimate. Uh, something that we ascribe value to. Something that we ascribe value to. It is something that we highly appreciate. Uh, something that is highly or someone highly thought of. Something or someone that is most honorable. It is that which is worthy of value. That which we uh, ascribe value to, high value to. The second word, ship is not like that ship that is on the sea, but rather it is quality of, or condition of, or the act of. Ascribing value to someone or something, it is the act of. It's it's not, uh, it, is the, it is the manner of offering quality of worship. It's the manner, the, the action of offering quality of worship. Combined, worship is a spiritual act, let's say it that way. Worship is a spiritual act of highly appreciating, highly valuing, highly thinking of, highly honoring, in this case, God. I'll say that again. Combined, worship is the spiritual act of highly appreciating the act of, and I say act, act, action. Those are important words. Act of, action of, highly thinking of, the act of honoring God with great honor. You've heard these verses before, and we just read one a moment ago. Psalm 29, verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord. See that? Ascribe to the Lord what? The glory to his name. Worship, there it is, the Lord in holy attire. The glory to his name. You've heard the word glory in all of your times here at this church. It is weightiness. Glory is weightiness. It is, in reference to God, Ascribing to God infinite value. It is weightiness, not monetarily, not speaking of money. It's esteeming someone, in this case God, as being precious. Listen to this. As being priceless. Ascribing to God weightiness. Ascribing to God value. Not monetarily, because God cannot be monetized. Ascribing to God a pricelessness. A preciousness. Beyond compare. Glory is declaring that God is, it's the act of declaring that God is worthy of being highly valued. It's the act of declaring, worshiping with heart, mind, soul, and strength that God is to be highly, above all, esteemed. Highly honored. And therefore we offer to God, we offer to God worship. Psalm 96, I think, gives the most kind of clear call to worship and why. We'll consider this verse throughout the, the sermon. But the reason why we are to worship God and how we are to worship God. Consider the psalmist's call for all people. All people, he says, oh, families of the earth, all people, that is, to ascribe to the Lord worship. That is to give to God alone what God alone deserves. Let me be clear. In our worship. In our giving God glory, we are not giving God something that he lacks. God is not lacking of glory. We all know this. 
He does not call us to give uh, him something, glory, in order to make up for glory that he is lacking. God is boundlessly glorious. Without limit, glorious God is. Rather, we passionately, that is with our hearts, we're going to make this reference a lot throughout the series, and with true declarations with our mind, with our heart, passionately, and with true declarations with our minds, we reflect back to God the glory that is infinitely and perfectly His. Uh, that which God infinitely and perfectly possesses. Glory. We give to God our hearts and proclaim about Him all that is infinitely true. The psalmist declares in Psalm 96-7, Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the people, Ascribe to the Lord glory, what? And strength. What are we saying about God? We are saying, God, you are most weighty. God, you are most powerful. The psalmist is calling us to say this about God. Ascribe to the Lord, uh, esteem him as, uh, estimate him as most glorious, most powerful. Ascribe to the Lord glory that is due his name. There is none but you, God. We are to say these things about God. These are acts of worship to God. Scriptures say, worship the Lord in holy attire. Come to God in a, in a way in which the way that you present Him, present yourself to Him. You are presenting yourself to someone who is infinitely valuable. Think of the president, if the president was coming. If you were going to the White House, how would you dress? How would you present yourself to Him? The scriptures are saying, present yourself to the Lord as if you are standing before one who is infinitely holy. Tremble before him, the scriptures say. All the earth, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Worship is this act of giving God all that is rightly due to him. The statement was made recently that we most often think of worship as something that, that we that we. Uh, partake in in order to receive something. This was said last week among the among the brothers. When we think of worship, we often think of receiving. When we think of worship, we often think of getting. Uh, maybe you've come from my background, where the churches from those backgrounds have the mantra: "Come and receive your miracle. Uh, come and get your breakthrough. Uh, come and get your blessing." That's the background that I came from. But maybe you come from a more hipster church. Well, they're calling you to do something just as, just the same. They're coming. They're calling you to come and experience something, which is a getting. It's it's a receiving. They're calling you to come and be loved, uh, to come and, and 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 know friends. They're calling you to come and get something. The point is that we've been taught that worship is about us. That when we worship. We come to get something for us. This is why so many people leave the churches. And when they leave the church, what do they usually say? I'm not getting anything out of that service. And I've also made the mistake as well. Asking some of you after service, what did you get? Most often I'll ask, what did you get? What did you get? Rather than, what did you give? How was your offering to God this morning? We come, we become convinced that, that God is not the primary audience of our worship, that we are the pri- primary audience of our worship, and that God is giving to us. 
We've been taught that, that we welcome God so that God can give us something. We welcome you into our presence so that you can give us something from you. Rather, he is welcoming, welcoming us into his presence for the purpose of us offering to him worship. We must remember that, yes, we receive. We receive spiritual nourishment. We do. But we must be careful now that we're in reformed churches, not to take the mentality from our other former churches into this church. That what we had before was all about receiving. And now that I'm in reform, I'm in a reformed church, I'm receiving something better. No, you're still now the one who's giving. You give worship. I've even overemphasized, and I ask for forgiveness of this, I've overemphasized us receiving means of grace. Don't be, uh, let me not downplay this. We are receiving grace. We are being nourished through the means of grace. But we are not primarily coming to receive. That's the point. To give God worship. To receive grace when we attend attend the means uh, by faith. is a blessing. But we primarily come to give. It's the act. Worship is the act of ascribing to the Lord the glory that is due his name. And we offer to him our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our strength in adoration. That's number one. What is worship? It's the act of ascribing to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Number two. Created for worship. Created for worship. Brothers and sisters, uh, why is it vitally important that you and I understand what worship is? Why do you need to know? Is it not interesting that the psalmist calls, listen to this, all the families of the earth, uh, he says, all peoples, to highly esteem, to highly value, to worship God. Ascribe to the Lord, verse 7. You families of of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory of his name. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. How is the psalmist, I wonder, inspired by God, that's how, able to make such a call? To tell every single person without distinction on the entire earth to worship God. It's not a suggestion. It's a call command for every single person, little ones. Older ones, middle-aged ones, all of the peoples on all of the earth, on the entire earth to worship God. The psalmist is appealing to the very purpose of man's existence. It's why you live. Uh, little ones, if I could have you look into me for a second, you have been created by God to worship Him. If you're wondering on this earth, what am I here for? Why am I here? What do I exist for? You have been created by God to worship God. Uh, Older ones, now you can look at me. And the same is true for you. You have been created to worship God. Your purpose and existence on this earth is to worship God. A few weeks ago, there were some young people who came to the morning class. And uh, I saw it as an opportunity to share with them the gospel. The place that I began with them, it's not that God loves you. The place that I began with them is this. You were created to worship God. You have been made by God to worship God. 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? What's the reason why you exist? We all know the answer, is it? What's the purpose for your genesis and your terminus? In existence, why did you begin and why will you end? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the reason why you live. Young people, again, you've been created to worship God. Old people, you've been created to worship God. Middle-aged people, you've been created to worship God. You have been made to enjoy God, to find satisfaction in God alone forever. For all peoples, all nations, all tongues, every tribe, you exist to find your satisfaction in God alone. Uh, Jonathan Cruz, in his book that we are uh, working through, uh, uh, What Happens When We Worship, essentially asks this question. It's this. What's the most important thing you will ever do, Jonathan asks? What's the most important thing you will ever do? Pause. For some of us, the most important thing that we will ever do is be married. For some of us, for people, I should say, the most important thing they will ever, ever do is have children. For others, the most important thing they will ever do is graduate from school, get a job, find a forever home, uh, finally complete the collection of their trinkets, maybe see their names in bright lights one of these days, etc., etc. The fact is, the most important thing that you will ever do is worship. The most important thing you will ever do is worship. For the couple who is married and who do not worship God together, they have a failed marriage. For the parent who raises children and raises them not to worship God is a failed parenting, is, is failed parenting to achieve earthly success. And not worship God in those endeavors is not success, it is failure. Worship is the most important act that you and I will ever do. No matter what fills your days, no matter what task you have to do on whatever day it is, whatever month it is, whatever year it is, worship is the most important of those tasks. Many of us fill our days, I've got this to do and that to do. Our agendas are, fit, are filled. If worship is not at the top of that list, then all of those things are for naught. The most important act that you will ever do is worship. Why? It's the very reason why you exist. It's the very reason why you exist. You exist for worship. You're weak. If you are in Christ... It must be a preparation for the time of worship. Is your week being oriented toward heading toward that goal of worship? If it is not, then your priorities are out of order. You have been made in the image of God. Genesis, Genesis 1, 26, you know the verse. Do you notice that there is an overemphasis in the order of creation? The way and manner of which you have been created in order to accentuate the high privilege and calling that humans have in being made in the image of God and the purpose for your existence. Let us, God says, our triune God says, make man in our image 
according to our likeness. Verse 27. So then God created man in his image. In his image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You see this, the kind of redundancy. It's, it's, it's an intentional redundancy in the explanation or manner in which God has created man. In his own image. We have been internally designed to worship God. We have been internally designed to yearn for, to desire after, to ascribe to the Lord glory that is due to his name alone. You have been made that way. God has made you and I rational creatures. We have a rational soul. We're not like four-footed creatures. We're not like winged birds. We're not like gilled mammals. We are the apex of God's creation, made in God's image, created for his glory to worship him. God placed in the soul of man a longing and ability to know him and to love him and to have fellowship with him. Uh, John Calvin says there is within the human mind and indeed by natural instinct an awareness of divinity. This we take to be beyond controversy. To prevent anyone from taking refuge in the pretense of ignorance, God himself has implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty. John Calvin will go on to say that there is no region, no city, no household that does not have some sense of deity embedded, inscribed within their hearts. Theologians call this the sensus divinitas. The sensus divinitas. That is this, the sense of the deity or the sense of the divine. Every single person has that innately within them because they are made in God's image. God has designed them that way. The Apostle Paul makes this point in Romans chapter 1. First, all men know that they have been created for worship, even though they suppress this knowledge. And then in Romans 2, even Gentiles, those who don't have God's word, they live according to that which has been written on their hearts. It is the knowledge of God that we have been created with. The knowledge that, that we know there, there is, you've heard this phrase, there's just something more. There's just, I just feel like there's something greater out there. The unbeliever says this. Why does the unbeliever say it? Because they have a sense of the divine. That, that they know there is something there. Because God has placed it in them to, to be fulfilled in Him alone. Sounds cliche when someone says, it's just, it just felt like there was something more. No, you're right. It's the sensus divinitas. It is the sense of the, of the divinity, the sense of the divine that God is calling you toward. When man was created, he resided in the, in the garden temple. He enjoyed the, the unique and perpetual presence of God. His days were full of worship. His satisfaction was completely in his creator. Uh, Cruz says in this point, every neurological reception, all the things that were firing off in his body and his mind were stuffed with divine majesty, filled with divine majesty, or, or we could say satisfied with divine majesty. Even the beauty of Eden could not compare with the beauty of Yahweh. Man lived in the perfect harmony in perfect harmony with his creator. He enjoyed the very purpose for his, his existence. To worship God. To find satisfaction in God alone. It's the reason why you live. You're living contrary 
to this purpose, then your life is unfulfilled. If, if you are sitting here saying, I, I'm just not satisfied, then maybe you're not worshiping God the way and manner in which you should. Your life will be lived in constant seeking satisfaction, but never finding it if it's not placed in God. If you invest in anything other than God, you will be investing in empty stocks. The prophets would say you are you are pouring waters into water into wells that are broken, cisterns that are broken, waters or wells that can't hold water. You've been made to worship God. The reason why man does not find fulfillment in God is because of sin. Man is deviated from his purpose of existence. If you're sitting here this morning and you are unfulfilled even now as the word of God is going forth. It's because you are pouring your worship into something other than God. And also because you are still in your sin. Our third point, man's deviation from his creator. Man's deviation, rebellion, you could say, from his to his creator. What are the first commands of the law, brothers and sisters? You know them. You've read them uh, every week now. What, what are the first commands of the law? You shall have, listen to these, no other gods before me, God says. You shall not make for yourself an idol of any likeness, God says. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. What are these commands? But an indictment against man's propensity to misplace worship. They are the simple acts of false worship from a fallen people. It's what fallen people do. When Satan tempted Eve and when Eve tempted Adam... The root of their rebellion was this. It was a deviation from true worship to God, to idolatry. And the idol of their worship was self. Themselves. Man's disobedience is found in a corrupted heart that seeks to deviate from the purpose of their existence, of worshiping God alone, to self-worship. The evidence of man's fallenness is found in this. I don't want to worship God. I want to worship anything else. I want to worship everything but God. That's the, the evidence of man's fallenness. To put greater value, greater weight, greater honor on everything but God is evidence of man's sinfulness. The first four commands of God are, are a rebuke against man's rebellion of their creative purpose. You exist to worship God. And, and, and the, the fallen person says, but I don't want to. Man says, I want to put other gods before you, triune God. Whatever it may be, you fill in the blank. Man says, I, I would rather worship created things. Rather than the creator. Man says, 
And I will take God's name in vain for requiring of me offering worship only to Him. Who does He think He is? And this is my day, not the Lord's day. I will do with this day and every day whatever I choose to do. Philosopher James Smith says, We order our lives around what we want, and whatever we want is what we worship. What are you thinking of right now besides God? I made this point a few Lord's Days ago or so, that while we are worshiping, whatever we cannot wait to get back to is what we really worship. I got to get to work. I got to get to the store, whatever. I got to get to whatever it may be. You fill in the blank. It's really a heart posture, isn't it? That while we are in the midst of worship, while we are in the midst of ascribing to the Lord glory that is due his name, the worship that we have been created to give, the worship that we should be longing to give, if our hearts are divided, you cannot serve two gods. If our hearts are even absent, though we be here, whatever is causing the conflict is that which we really worship. Imagine a husband who says he loves his wife, but actually loves ten other women at the same time. But says to his wife in her face, but I love you. It is the God that we put before the one true God that is our God. And I pray that there would be no other. Because God says there is no other God. Let, let, let God be clear. God says there are no gods before him. There are no gods after him. He knows not of one. He says all the idols are dumb. None of them speak. None of them have life within them. They do not exist. And yet we offer to them our lives and hope that they will give us some kind of life satisfaction back. Some kind of joy. Some kind of completeness back. But they are wells without water that can't hold water. God says you can give it to them. But it would be a foolish thing to do because they are nothing. All the gods are nothing. We offer our, our, ourselves to things that are no thing. Sin has done this. We, we, how has this happened? Sin has caused this to happen. Corruption of the heart has done this. We have done this. The Apostle Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. And how is it that we have suppressed, pushed back, pushed down that which we innately know? We have the, the sense of the divine. How have we suppressed it, pushed it down? What is the expression of our ungodliness, our unrighteousness, our corruption? It is this. They exchanged the truth of God. For a lie. What do you mean, Paul? He said, they worshipped. See what he got back to. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was forever blessed. Amen. Paul says, do you want to know the, the, the greatest expression, uh, the greatest evidence of man's fallenness, the greatest expression of man's uh, corruption? It is exchanging worship 
It is offering worship to that which is no thing. It's taking it from the one who rightly deserves it and giving it to something that is no thing. It's the foolish exchange of man and worship. It's going from offering true worship to God, the only one who is worthy of worship, to a thing or, or someone who is unworthy of worship. Man now views himself as the center of the universe, as the one who deserves to find satisfaction wherever and however he sees fit. Whatever is the most important thing in our lives will be that thing which we worship. It's the inverse way. It's the inverse way of saying worship is the most important thing that we will ever do. It's the inverse way of saying that. The fall of man is the declaration that whatever I want, let me slow this down, whatever I want, my son, I said, are, are you learning? He goes, you speak too fast. Dad. Slow down and then I'll get more. Here, here, here's a slow one for you. Whatever I want is most important because I am most important. It's the violation of the first four commandments. Luther says, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is your God. The world turns to creaturely things as their gods. And the chief of the creatures that is highest in their estimation is self. It's because whatever pleases you. So it's not the other things that we actually worship. It's really what pleases us. So in the end, we become the gods. Now, can this be remedied? Can this be fixed? All of what we just said is really, really bad news, isn't it? Yeah. Well, is there good news? Of course there is. Number four, the Father seeks worshipers. The Father seeks worshipers. Uh, if you'd like to turn there, you can. We'll be here in just a, for just a moment. John chapter 4. <clears throat> John chapter 4 and verse <clears throat> 23. I will not uh, expound upon the text greatly, but if you'd like to turn there to keep me honest, you can. John chapter 4 and verse 23. The Lord uh, Jesus is meeting a woman at, at the well. She's a Samaritan woman. Uh, by the way, if you would like more of an exposition, Pastor Isaiah taught a wonderful sermon on this about two and a half years ago or so. Uh, but an hour is coming. Maybe three. And now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Uh, since the fall, brothers and sisters, our triune God has decreed to redeem fallen man. He's been in the business, if you will, of saving people. He's been in the business, if you will, of reclaiming worship for himself. What's the purpose of this redemption? Again, worship. God redeems man, and in saving man, he reclaims right worship. We have gone from, those who have been saved, we go from worshiping self to being given new hearts to where we now worship rightly, we worship God. Can we be redeemed from false worship? Can we be redeemed from our sin? Can we be restored? The Lord Jesus answers this question, doesn't he? He says, a time is coming and right now is, or 
at the present hour, the Father is actively seeking worshippers. The Father, by the Son, through the Spirit, is in pursuit of His elect. And in, in, in the purpose of this pursuit, the purpose of this pursuit is to restore right worship. To bring fallen creatures who worship self back to right worship of God. Now, you must be redeemed in order to offer right worship to God. The person who is not redeemed, the person who is not converted, cannot offer true worship. Without true conversion, there can be no true worship. The Spirit blows where He wills. He takes a heart of stone, gives people a heart of flesh, that does what? It longs for worship, for right worship. The statement by our Lord, though, is unparalleled. There's nothing like this in all of Scripture. Nowhere, nowhere do we read that God seeks anything in all of Scripture, except here. And what is God seeking? Worship. And right worshipers. This gives us a sense of the delight, of the delight that God takes in worship. Here our Lord has a conversation with an unconverted woman. And what's what's the topic of their conversation? It's about worship. Without giving the full exposition of, of this encounter, our Lord with this Samaritan woman has a conversation. And the central theme of their conversation is worship. The Samaritan woman, uh, maybe in, a, in an attempt to distract our, our Lord's gaze from her adultery, she asked our Lord a question. And it's this, our fathers worship in this mountain. She's a Samaritan. She's not a Jew. You people, Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. What's the place of worship, she says? What's the right place of worship? Speaking about a place. Uh, she has something of a sense that she knows that she's been created for worship, that she should be worshiping. And, and the question is, so then where should I worship? She knows... See that? She knows she should worship. The question is, now where? Samaritans, as far as we know, they offered enthusiastic worship. This is important. She offered, they offered enthusiastic worship to God. Void of truth. The Lord says to her in Matthew or John 4, 22, you worship what you do not know. You're worshiping but you're worshiping, your worship is misinformed. You, you worship what you don't know. These Samaritans, uh, here's why, they rejected a greater part of the Old Testament. They instituted their own scriptures. They instituted their own priesthood. They devised a worship that was pleasing. This might sound familiar to some from my background, at least. That was, that was pleasing to them. They were giving to God all of the things that God had not asked for and rejecting the things that God explicitly stated that he desired. And that was, for them, it is will worship. Will worship is devised by the will of man and not of the will of God. That's will worship. Their worship was what all of the unconverted offer to God. Here it is. Worship full of zeal but empty of truth. Often, people care more about whether or not they feel good than if what they are doing is right. 
if what they are doing is according to what God has willed. I, I've mentioned this to everybody now. Watching a documentary with my wife on Hillsong. It's called Hillsong Exposed. And one of the persons who has studied the movement of Hillsong and their so-called worship made a point about their music. This person who is not a Reformed Baptist, not Reformed at all, actually said, their music is intentionally structured to make someone feel a certain way. Uh, I play a little bit of music. I know what an A chord does to me when I, or an A minor chord does to me when I hit it. It's very deep. It's very kind of um, heavy. I know what an E minor chord does when I hit the A minor to the E minor. It's very deep. It's not as happy as a D chord. D chord is very light. Dustin is smiling. He knows these chords. It's very light. It's very kind of bright. A G chord is very light. It's very kind of bright. This lady says the music is manipulating people's feelings. She said the chord structures, the lighting, the way the songs are even sung, being contemporary as they are, she said that you are, it sounds like you're listening to Coldplay rather than Christian music. And the song should cause people to ask, is this really God working in me or are my, my feelings making me feel? The way the song is being sung, is it making me feel like God is working in me? They were interviewing people who are part of that church, who attended for a great amount of time. And they spoke about their time there. Nothing about conversion was said in any of their interviews. Nothing about growth as a Christian was said in any of their interviews. Only how the music, listen to this, made them feel. And how charismatic the leaders were. I, I loved when we had guests, but when Carl Lentz preached, the lady went, yeah. How many friends they temporarily made. In their interviews, they're, they're cursing, using un, uh, undistinguished language from a believer to an unbeliever. Their worship was a lot like the Samaritan worship. It's whatever satisfied them, whatever made them feel good. They were the center of worship, not God. Because how they felt was most important, not what God required of them. Now we go, oh, oh, oh I don't know. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Good, you shouldn't want to. But the opposite is not correct either. Our Lord says, we worship, speaking of the Jews, what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. We may, we may think, well, that's the proper way to worship then, right? To the Jews, God revealed the gospel in seed form. To them was given the prophets, the law, the Holy Scriptures. Uh, even Christ, the Messiah, came from the Jews. They were a privileged people. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a privileged people you are, yes? But our Lord makes a distinction also between what Israel was doing as also not being that which God desires from his people. He says, and here's how we know this, but an hour is coming. And now is, listen to what he says, when the true worshiper. Not the Samaritan and, and not the Jew will worship the Father in spirit and truth. What was the mark of worship of the Jews? It was worship, listen to this, without zeal or without spirit. It was holding to the letter, 
but merely form without devotion. Our Lord would say, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They are, our Lord would say, they are whitewashed tombs. They are orthodox in form, but absent of faith, hope, and love. Lips divorced from hearts. What offends the Lord? Hypocritical worship. The one who says he offers worship, but from here really doesn't. One who is pretentious. You know how offended you are when someone who is not who they claim to be is claiming to be something around you that you know that they're not. Uh, The person who has been talking behind your back and then when they come and sit with you, they're smiling and they're hugging on you and you're thinking, I know what you said. I know who you are. You disdain their very presence because you know they are not who they say they are. This is why our Lord says about Israel, I've had enough of your burnt offerings. Stop bringing me your sacrifices. What do I want? The Lord says he wants a heart, one that is contrite, one that is repentant, one that is broken. Don't give me any more of your sacrifices. Give me your heart and your sacrifice. Saints of God, those who stand on the shore, uh, those who are maybe not saved, looking and saying, what are the errors and pitfalls of worship then? Here they are, very simply, okay? Zeal without knowledge and knowledge without zeal. What the pitfalls? It's truth without spirit and spirit divorced from truth. True acceptable worship is both spirit and truth. It's rational. Worship is. Worship, look at young people, listen. Worship should make you think. Uh, When I was growing up, I used to think that worship, as I mentioned this last week, I used to think that worship was only um, praise, the fast songs, and then worship, the slow songs. That was worship. All of what we do is worship. From the call to worship to the benediction, it's all worship. And it engages your mind. It also inflames your heart. And not because someone's yelling. Not because someone is animated like I am. You should not say, he's animated. He gets me going. The word of God should get you going. You should not say, he yells. He fires me up. God's word should fire you up. This is just how I am. What does God's word say? That is what fires me up. You shouldn't need someone to fire you up. God's word does this for me. Worship is a conscious activity. If you're taking notes, that's important. It's a conscious activity, act, action. It is the holy act that we offer to God that requires us to engage both our hearts and minds at all times in worship. At all times, from the call to worship to the benediction, at all times we are engaging hearts and minds. You know what an unconscious activity is, don't you? 
What, what's an unconscious activity? You know it. You do it every day, I hope. Something that requires you, that requires no thought of you. Something that, that you do naturally without you even thinking about it. Something that you put really no effort into. Sleeping. Sleeping is an unconscious, you are actively sleeping. You're actively breathing right now, aren't you? I hope you are all breathing. You are, you are, you didn't even, you're not even thinking about it as you breathe. You're just breathing. Little ones, take a deep breath. You're breathing right now. You consciously took a deep breath. But up until that moment, you've just been breathing. You haven't been thinking about it. When we worship, we must not take an unconscious approach to our worship. What do I mean? Something that we just don't think about. We just do it. Worship is actively, consciously engaging your heart and your mind. If you are not actively engaging heart and mind, you're doing an unconscious activity, which is why sometimes when we get, I don't even know, what what, what, what are you teaching? Because though you were here, you were not here. There was, there was no engaging of this and this to God, which is your act of worship when you come. The danger is we've come and we've said, give to me. Do something to me. I want something to f- fall on me, right? Back from the day, it was, Holy Ghost, fall on me. Let something happen to me. No, it's the opposite. Give yourself to him. Which is a conscious activity. You can't sit there and breathe deep. Which is why sometimes we fall asleep because we're breathing so deep. It's so unconscious that, that we take into it the, the posture of, I wish this was the way I felt when it was time to go to bed because I'm ready to sleep. The, the, the conditions are perfect. The air is perfect. The lighting is just right. I could take a nap right now. I say that because I've been there. I've done that. And those are the moments where I'm not actively engaging. It's so, see the fly? It's so easy to disengage. That's a big one. I wonder if it's going to fly on his face, right? Where will it go? Did he take a shower? If he starts flying around his head, we'll know. It's so easy to disengage. It's a conscious activity that we have to discipline ourselves to involve ourselves in. We must not approach worship as a time to disconnect. Why? Our hearts. Because that would be the, that would be the error of the Jews. And we must not experience or have this time as be a time where we disconnect our minds because that would be the error of the Samaritans. Here's another thing we need to do. I hope everybody throughout this whole place is listening. Acknowledge your traditions. Confront them. Confront that before I came to this church, I was always waiting for something to happen to me. And now it's not that, it, not, not, now it's not that way. I was wrong. That was wrong. I need to be retrained into the way that I was trained to believe worship, what I should experience, experience when I come to worship. 
That's another word, experience. Come experience this, come experience that. Worship is not an experience. It's fellowship and communion with God. We don't want to have worship without zeal. We don't want to have worship without truth. We want them both. Zeal and truth. Engage our hearts. Our ga- engage our minds. Let me say also this. And we'll touch, touch upon this in further sermons. That means there needs to be preparation for this day as well. What are you doing to prepare yourself? I said earlier that the, the week should be zeroing in, heading toward this time of worship. What are you doing, therefore, to prepare yourself for worship the day before? Maybe even the days before. Uh, whatever those those tasks are that usually fill up your day, can they be done earlier? So that all that you need to devote to God when you come to worship is worship. And nothing else will distract you. There are no activities outside of this that matter. This is all that matters. Have you rested? Have you prepared your clothes? Is your Bible where it needs to be so that you don't need to look for it? Will you engage your minds? How do you listen? If you have trouble and you know your body and you say, man, I have times where I get sleepy. Well, maybe bring with yourself a little pick-me-up. It would be good for you if you say, I have trouble sometimes. Help yourself. Are you prepared for morning and afternoon? Do you long for the Lord's Supper? It amazes me how some of us will be so willing to, to, to not take great concern to come to the supper. The Lord is welcoming you to his table to fellowship with him. If you can boast, I was there though. That's all that matters. Then you're no better than the Jews. And you can say it was good. But I have no idea what went on. Then you're no better than the Samaritans. The Father is seeking true worshipers. Our minds are to engage with God in this conscious activity. God has made you and I rational creatures. Given us his words that we could engage our minds. And not just wait. And not just wait for points where we go, oh, I never knew that. That's new to me. Oh, that's a new thing. If we're here only to hear what we didn't already know, then we commit the sin and error of Jerusalem worship. If we come and say, move me, move me, light my fire, then we're no better than the Samaritans. The man of God, whoever he may be, It's called to stand before the people of God and and faithfully preach God's word, even if you've already heard it. Not to spend all week. What a I feel for the, the, the Hillsong preachers of the world. You know how creative they have to be? They have to say something cutting edge every week. It's a hard job. The preacher, the faithful one, does not spend all week trying to tell you something that you've never heard before. I pray that what you hear in this pulpit is what you have heard before. I pray that what you hear in this pulpit is something that you've heard from our prophets, 
something that you've heard from the apostles, something that you've heard from the apostolic fathers, from the apologists, from the patristics, from the medievals, from the reformers, from the Puritans, from the particular Baptists, and most importantly, from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I pray that you can say, oh yes, amen to that. Amen to that. We preach that which is ancient. Not what is cutting new and, and edgy. No. That which has been said and has been said and will continue to be said by me, by our children, by our children's children until Christ returns. Let us hold fast to the word passed on to us and keep the flame burning. We are called to love with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why does all of this matter in, in conclusion? Number five, worship is determinist for all God's people. Let's go to this in closing. Revelation chapter five. We'll go there together. It's the terminus, the end point of existence for all of God's people. Revelation, you should know this verse. Revelation, good to see you again, Revelation. Revelation chapter five. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard them singing to him who sits on the throne to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, amen, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The end of all things for all of God's people is glory and worship to the triune God. Why does everything that we have been talking about matter? Because that will be the end and the beginning of your existence. The end of this existence in this life will be the beginning of an eternal worship before God. Why you've been redeemed. Amen. The constant activity of the church of God in heaven is glory, worship, and honor to God. It's the recovery of man made in the image of God and the return to the purpose for which he has been made. Worship. Let us then, with this knowledge, not be preoccupied with gates of pearl. Let us not be preoccupied with streets of gold. Uh, let, us not, our, let, let us not long to be reunited to those who have gone before us or exalt the moment when we will have no more pain. Rather, God tells us that the wonder of heaven, the greatest fellowship, and the most lasting satisfaction will be found in the worship of the saints to their God forever. Which is why our public gatherings are so important. They are, as has been said before, they are a dress rehearsal for the eternal state. What we do today should be a taste of what we will do for eternity. This is why you need to engage your heart. 
This is why you need to engage your mind. Because they will in eternity be forever engaged and engulfed, enmeshed in the worship and glory of God. When we meet every Lord's Day, there should be a heavenly quality to our gathering. And I'm not talking about an experience. Experiences are for Disneyland. It's for the Grand Canyon. For Big Sur here in California. Those are experiences. We're talking about fellowship and communion with God that never ends. It's continual. We hoped, no, we hope that after every one of our gatherings, morning and afternoon, we can say about this when the day of worship is done, just like Jacob, surely the Lord is in this place. It's what men like Jonathan Edwards would say in their times of great awakening. Men and women would have no desire during those times to leave the communion of God with the saints. They would just stay and stay. They, like the saints of heaven, were fixated on the presence of God. And I pray that you have wanted moments or there have been moments, at least in your life, during our times of worship, when you say, stop, don't, don't stop preaching. Don't stop. Keep, keep whatever you're, just keep saying whatever you're, just keep preaching, Pastor. Please don't stop preaching. When we're holding the elements, you say, I could, I could hold the body and bread, or the body and, and blood of our Lord. I, I could hold this moment forever. Or when you're seeing recently, which has been a blessing for my soul, Pastor Isaiah breaking the bread. Those, those moments seem to, to just stop in time for me. Contemplate on the brokenness of our Lord's body. And yes, even the bitterness now of the wine. You should say, Ugh, my sin. My sin. Oh. And our Lord has bore it on his shoulders. Oh, the bitterness of my sin. And he has borne it on my shoulders. On his shoulders. To think only, oh, yeah, I don't like this. You, I, I hope you don't like sin either. It's what he bore for you. The next time, Lord willing. And I think we've kind of touched on it a little bit. We will consider what happens when we worship. What happens when we worship? 